hey, I, uh, I, I want to wage war with you against this thing called indifference. Uh, you are churched enough to where you could show up in the routine of church and basically expect the, the normal routine. Some songs, a prayer, a message, an invitation, another prayer, uh, a reminder about this thing called offering that everyone loves to do, and, and then an exit out the door. Uh, and, and you could get into that routine so much that you begin to not expect God at work. We do not come to church to read about God. We come to church to read about what God has done and be reminded about the fact that He is faithful and in our midst to continue to not only do what He has done, but even new work in and through His bride, the church. And if we're not careful, our routines can make us look really foolish. I love doing prison ministry. I love going into uh, places where people are incarcerated and preaching the gospel because there is a hunger for getting to be in the presence of God that we, for some reason, in all of our freedoms out here, don't necessarily hold on to. Plus, it's also a place where you get to take a deep breath uh, from the wars that are going on in prison and kind of keeping your head on a swivel because of all of the things that are happening around you. And so I was, uh, several years ago, around the Christmas time, we went into a women's prison uh, down towards Columbia, and I got to preach the Christmas sermon. And it was super excited about it. God, you could just palpably feel the presence of God there as we opened God's Word to preach. And at the end, a lady got up to sing what we would call in the Baptist world a special. Praise God. <clears throat> and y'all remember the specials back in the day? Uh, one of my favorite specials growing up as a kid was, And the gift goes on, the Father gave the Son. And the gift goes on, the Son gave the Spirit. Because you could do hand motions to it. Anybody that, part of the hand motion team back in the day? Praise God. One person. I got th two people. We're going to get it back to, I'm just kidding. We're going to leave that in 1996. That's where it needs to stay. Uh, but she got up to introduce her song, and she wasn't paying attention. She was so in her routine that she wasn't paying attention. So she led into the song by saying, you know, it's really easy in this holiday season when you're running around trying to get presents and gifts for everyone under the Christmas tree. And I'm on the side going, no, they're not trying to get Christmas presents. They're trying not to get shanked. That's all they're... <clears throat> like, it's a completely different battle. And, and, and my, my concern for us is we could be so church that our posture is similar, that we come into church not with an expectation that the living, reigning, ruling Savior of the world has come to engage and encounter us through the Word of God and remind us, refresh us, and speak into our lives. And with that kind of posture, we could come in looking as foolish as saying to a bunch of people in prison that we need to worry about buying presents and gifts. And so I, I want to invite you to open up your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 17 with expectancy, uh, not because the preacher's good, not because the music was good or to your liking, not because you're impressed with the church so far, not impressed, but because the Word of God is powerful and able to cut between bone and marrow. It's the foundation on which we stand, and it's always in season. It's always to your profit to read the Word of God. Are you tracking with me? Uh, we're in a series called The Rise of the King. We're building up to the Christmas season when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords came on a silent night in the backwoods of nowhere in a town called Bethlehem, which was the least of the, of, of the tribes of Israel. But it was also a small town that had a big history. It's where Ruth and Boaz struck up their love story. Some of you all are familiar with that. That happened in the middle of nowhere in Bethlehem. It's also where uh, David was anointed to be king, which we read about just a few weeks prior. And so we're building up our anticipation of the king of kings by looking at these other versions of kings that God sent so that through the lineage of them we would get the one that we actually needed. 
Now we started all the way back by looking at a guy named Saul. Saul was tall. He was handsome. He was everything that from the personal eye they wanted as a king. Now there was a promise in the book of Deuteronomy that God would, when Israel was established, give them a king. But the nation of Israel tried to force God's hand and bring God's plan into, into play by their own work and their own effort, almost forcing it into play. I said a couple of weeks ago that the biggest hindrance to the work of God in your life is your self-sufficiency and your uh, dependency on you doing what you want, when you want, and then giving God glory for it. It's this idea that we can do God's work without the Spirit of God and God will be honored and glorified in it. It's God work in and through us that brings his kingdom in and around us. You aren't going to force it into play. In fact, you get in the way. Luke 9, 23 says, If anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross, deny himself daily. Your daily role as a follower of Jesus is to die to yourself so that the Spirit of God can come alive in you and enable you to live the Christian life. You are inadequate to do it by just your own ethics and sense of morality. You need the very Spirit of God in you so that you can live the life that God has called you to live. So we are, by nature, as followers of Jesus, a dependent people. Stop trying to act like you're not desperate. Uh, a non-desperate posture before God is ridiculous. It's like being a Pharisee with your arms crossed at the table thinking that you're his equal and you don't belong on the floor worshiping and wiping his feet with your own tears. Are you tracking with me? So Saul gets put in as king. He's tall. He's handsome. He's going to look great in the Christmas parade. He's going to intimidate everyone around them. It's going to be great. It's what they asked for, and it goes terribly wrong. God warned them that it would go wrong. So Saul rejects Saul, and through Samuel, who's dejected in the beginning of chapter 16, sends him to the town of Bethlehem to anoint a son of Jesse, who will be accepted and will be anointed to be the king. David steps in as king, but he is a unique king because we read a unique statement in chapter 16 about him. In chapter 16, it says that from that day forward, when he was anointed to be king, the Holy Spirit was with him. And everything we read about King David should be read within the context of the fact that he was spirit-empowered. It wasn't that David was great. It wasn't that he had skills with a Z that made him able to be a better king than Saul. At the end of the day, it was the fact that the Spirit of God wasn't moment by moment with him, but in every moment with him in his endeavors that made him a great king that could be known as a king after God's own heart. And we know this because, I mean, let's be honest, David doesn't have a great batting average either. There's that whole thing with Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite, that didn't go well. You tracking with me? I mean, there were several other moments where David's family goes upside down and things are not going well. So he's known as a man after God's own heart because of the presence of God on him that led him to conviction and repentance, not because of the track record that he kept. If you want to be a man or a woman of God, of integrity, it's not that you're going to be perfect, it's that you're going to be dependent. This is why I keep talking about dependency. Godly people are dependent people. Godly people know they need Jesus, and they're not afraid of looking desperate in front of him. So we finally get to the giant, and we've gotten here because David brought the cheese. David shows up on the day that his life's going to change, simply serving his father, serving his brothers, and bringing some cheese to their commanding officer. And that's what gets him to the battle that he was created to fight that would bring him into national prominence. I love this story. Let's unpack it together. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1. The Philistines now mustered their army for battle and camped between Soka and Judy. And Judy. Judy. Judy, Judy, Judy. That's an Andy Griffith thing. So, Soka in Judah and Ezekah at Ephes de Mim. Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. 
So the Philistines and the Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between him. I pulled up a picture of the valley of Elah. I wanted you to get this view as we talk through this story in mind. The Philistines are going to retreat and run this way. The Israelite army is going to come down from the hill and chase them off. And what gives them the gumption to do this is that David, the runt of his family, the least of his family, is going to show up to his uh, brother's commanding officer, leave the baggage back here, and where the nation of Israel is going out day in and out in battle array with no intention to fight, they're just showing up. That's what a lot of us do at church. No intention to worship, no intention to actually apply the word of God to our lives. We just showed up because mama won't be happy if we don't. Grandma will roll over in her grave if we ain't in church on Sunday. So we came, not with the intention of encountering a living God, being transformed by him and going to war for the kingdom of God. Instead, we just came to check the box. And this is where a lot of us are. We're dressed up on the, val- on the hill, but we're not fighting in the valley. So Saul's camp would have been up here. You've got the Philistine camp over here. You've got this triangular valley down here. And this is where one of the most popular stories of all time is told. It's the setting of the story. It's so iconic of a story that every time you have a significant underdog, it's always talked about as being a David and Goliath story because this is the underdog stories of underdog stories. And the reason it's such a big underdog story is because verses 4 all the way to verse 11 go into significant detail on the champion that David would face. Look at the text with me. It says, Then Goliath, a Philistine, a champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. There's a little asterisk besides that in the NLT. That's because the Dead Sea Scrolls say that he was around six feet nine inches tall. The actual Hebrew text says that he was around uh, six, I'm trying to remember, it's not shekels, uh, measurement that's in the Old Testament that's blanking from Russ in second service. Cubits, praise God, uh, tall. <laughs> and, and there's debate over it. The point is not necessarily you understanding that he was nine feet tall or six feet nine. The point is that he was physically daunting. His presence, even from that valley, throw that picture back up for me, even from where they were standing, it was noticeable. They would see this guy and they knew from a distance, this man is physically intimidating. He's a physically intimidating person. Robert Wadlow is the largest man ever recorded in modern history. He was 8 feet 11 inches tall. That's a picture of him right there. That's a pretty physically dominating guy. He needs to eat some Wheaties. He didn't apparently and died at the age of 22 because of complications with his health. He likely had something going on in his pituitary glands which caused you to grow. The current tallest man on earth is 8 feet around 4 or 5 inches. He had a growth on his pituitary gland that caused him to grow. He likely, like this guy, would have died a young death, but doctors in modern medicine were able to diagnose that treat that pituitary gland, and he stopped growing, but that dude is huge if you've ever seen pictures of him as well. So you've got a physically imposing challenger who's extremely tall. Now, why does that matter? I mean, great, there's tall people everywhere, they play in the NBA, like, super. Why does it matter? Well, if you read everything that's led up to this, we've got a lot of people that keep looking at physical attributes to determine what the outcomes are going to be. The nation of Israel wants a king they get a king that's what? Tall. And the reason they wanted a tall king was so that when other tall guys that came and threatened them came around, they could look at their tall guy and be like, tall guy, go handle it. Go take care of it. But we're going to discover that tall guy is nowhere to be found whenever their tall guy comes down in the valley. 
Because whenever your identity is built on your physical attributes, whenever your worth or sense of security is built on how big the tanks are and how big the airplanes are and someone builds a bigger tank and a bigger plane, the sense of security is gone. So we spend all this time on height. In chapter 16, Samuel goes to anoint a king and he sees Eliab. What does Eliab have going for him? It's like Sunday school if you're paying attention. It's not Jesus on this one, but he's tall. He's tall. And so Samuel thinks, he's tall, must be king. And God says, don't look at the outward appearance. Look at the heart. Because God starts with the heart. Because what God knows and what you and I should know is what's on the inside always ends up being seen on the outside. But for many of us, we start with what's on the outside. And in a moment, we get impressed. We get fooled. We think that they're stronger than they actually are. But the character issues that are on the inside surface and it, and it uh, takes the legs out from under them. And then you find yourself in a situation where you've got a person that's physically gifted but characterly, uh, characterly and morally corrupt. That's how over and over again Fortune 500 CEOs fall because we look at the outward appearance and not at where it counts in the heart. And so we have a setting. We have a challenger. He's super tall. And it brings to play... Is all that stuff that God's saying true? Because there's a lot of stuff that when we practice it in church, it makes sense, but then you get in your real life and you don't want to use it. You don't want to use it then, right? Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, unless the world gets really big. <laughs> right? Those who wait on the Lord, they will be strengthened like those on the wings of eagles, and he will pick them up unless he's not showing up on your timetable and the enemy's getting closer. See, there's a lot of stuff that we talk about and espouse that we don't practice. And what God's doing in chapter 17 is he's saying, we're going to practice this one. I'm going to teach you, whether it's with many or with few, that God, if he is with you, can overcome anything. And we see this story over and over again in the story of Gideon and his army of 300. I mean, you remember the story? He's got all these people that are ready to help him. And in my mind, when you're going to take on a significant enemy, you want numbers. If I got more than you, even if we're less talented than you, then if we got enough, then eventually we're going to overwhelm you and win. So he takes them through military exercises. And who, who gets to stay? Not the in-shape CrossFitters. That, that had run the half mile, and they're like, yeah, bro, scoop up some water with my hand and drink. No, the people that were so out of shape that they're like, I ain't got time to put my hand down there and then get it to my, I'm just going to put my face in the water. And God's like, yeah, them. Why? Because God doesn't need an army to win. I mean, when, when they go to take on uh, the, the um, nation of Jericho, and they had the most fortified city in modern history at that point in time, who, who does God say to send out first? The musicians, where I'm from, we're not picking emo boys to go down and fight the battle for us. I'm just throwing it out. Like, like the guys that are really in touch with their feelings, hey, let's go let them fight. That's going to go well for us. But yet God's like, no, let's, let's get the musicians out and tell them to blow their trumpets. Why? Because it was about vertical praise. It wasn't about the size of the army. It wasn't because Israel was physically daunting. We're talking about an enslaved people who had been forgotten, who weren't a people, who didn't have a possession or a nation or anything. And the only thing that they had of value, the only thing that gave them any sense of security in the entire journey from Egypt to the promised land was the presence of God. And that was the point. 
It was the presence of God that was to draw the nations to them to worship. It was the presence of God that was to give them security. It was the presence of God that would provide for them in the wilderness and in the land that had plenty. It always was about the presence of God. Yet, for some reason, the nation of Israel continues to get it twisted that it's about physical attributes and how big you are and how strong you are and what you can do for you and how big your army is and how big your tanks are and how much you've got instead of it being about what you have in the Lord, I, I wish we didn't struggle with that same problem, but it's true of us. Most of us get our sense of confidence not in the things of God, but in the things that we can see, in the things that we can accumulate, in the skills and the gifts and the talents that we have. And so God says, let's, let's put this on display one more time for you to remember that I am the Lord and the God of all, and I can overcome armies with musicians. I can overcome many with few, I am able, if you have me, to do anything and overcome anything that you face. But if you don't have me, hope your guns are big. Hope your talent stays. Because in the word of Toby Keith, you ain't as good as you once was, and everyone finds that out one day. So his height is brought up. On top of that, we get a rundown of his defense systems. We know, based on 1 Samuel chapter 13 that the Philistines had perfected metal crafting in a way that no one else could touch. They had better weapons than everybody, better defense systems than everybody. Their shields were stronger. They were made stronger and more durable. And so you get into this rundown in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, and it goes on to say this about Goliath. Goliath, uh, excuse me, verse 5, he wore a bronze helmet and a bronze coat of mail that weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on a soldier. So the defenses are run down. The defenses, he's got a helmet of bronze, a coat of mail, and armor on his legs. To the nation of Israel, they looked at that and said, there's no way to kill him. It's indefensible. This is why the detail's there. To us, we see that and we're like, yeah, you know, go and get a gun. And it'll work. <laughs> but, but to them... They look at it and they're like, how, how do you take that? There's no way. He's covered from head to toe except for this one little spot right here that God had a rock that was heading for him. But, but, but nonetheless, he, he's covered from head to toe. How do you penetrate such a defense? On top of that, the dude is wearing a chainmail that weighed 125 pounds. When I was a freshman in high school, I weighed 125 pounds carrying 45-pound plates on each side of me. This dude is wearing that around like, oh, this is just an outfit. It's just a casual Friday. I mean, like... like that's how big and physically daunting he is. On top of that, he's got a lot of weaponry, three of which are mentioned. He's got a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was a heavy and thick as a weaver's beam tipped with an iron speared head that weighed 15 pounds. How many of you have ever been lug alerted over at a Planet Fitness? Do y'all have Planet Fitness out here? They have a lug alarm, so if you drop the weights, like they, they blow an alarm on you apparently. And they have Pizza Fridays. It's my kind of gym. Um, <laughs> You know, it's going to run a few calories off and then eat 600. It's going to be great. Uh, why am I not changing? Uh, <laughs> don't do this. Your rotator cuff will thank me later. But how many of you have ever picked up a 15-pound dumbbell and you're like, <laughs> yeah. Okay, don't, don't raise your hand. Some of y'all have. But, you know, you're, you're just sitting there. Okay, it doesn't seem like a lot when you pick it up as a dumbbell. But if you went to throw that, it wouldn't go very far. Like, a, a, like you've got a better chance of shot putting it. Goliath is so strong, and the text want us to know, wants us to know that he's so big that he is going to launch a 15-pound spear 
from nine feet, perhaps, in the air down towards a runt named David. Now, uh, I'm not a scientist, don't know a ton about science, but I love animals. One of my favorite animals is rhinos, uh, because when they get together, bad things happen. Here's why. (laughs) Rhinos can only see around four feet ahead of them, but they can run up to 24 to 26 miles per hour at top speed. So if you get a bunch of wolves together, you call them a wolf pack. If you get a bunch of rhinos together, and they can't see on this side only what's in front of them, and it's only about four feet ahead of them, and they're going 26 miles an hour, and they weigh what they weigh because they don't lay off turkey. You know what that group's called? A crash. Because anything that's about five feet is not going to get slowed down enough before those rhinos crash into it. It's going to leave a mark. What's the text saying? The text is saying 15 pounds because it's going to leave a mark. And the nation of Israel standing on the hill, and they see nine feet covered from head to toe in armor with a javelin and a spear. He also has a sword. David's going to use that later for his purpose. And they look at it and they think, how in the world are we going to take something like that on? On top of that, he's got a shield, but he doesn't carry it. No, he's got people for that. I mean, this dude rolls with an entourage. We know from other stories he has four other brothers. So there's five brothers. They're all giants. He's obviously the alpha male at this point in history who comes down in the valley. And we're told in this text around verse 8 that Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across the Israelites. Why are y'all coming out to fight, he called. I am the Philistine champion, but you are only servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. And then he says this, I defy the armies of Israel today. Send a man who will fight me. Send a man who will fight me. He blasphemes God. He blasphemes the people of God, which according to the law of God is condemnable to death by stoning. Don't miss that. You can mock man who looks weak, but don't mock God. Because if it's his law, if it's his promise and his word, and you stand in his way, it will not end well for you. It will end poorly. Sorry, I just flashed back to a really old movie, and I had to throw it in there. Now, we've got a tall guy that's supposed to be a physically dominating king. And in verse 11, you pick up the story, and it says, When Saul and the Israelites heard this, along with Eliab, who's also the other tall guy in Israel, they were terrified and deeply shaken. They were terrified and deeply shaken. Now, why so much detail in this story? Why why does the Hebrew writer break from tradition and give us so much insight into the, the weight of Goliath's spear? Who cares how much the spear weighs, right? Like, who cares how much the chain of mail weighs on him? Do we really need to know that? The point is, you and I are going to have moments where we are tempted to look at, with our eyes, at the physical daunting attributes of an obstacle and fear it more than we fear God. And you need to remember and know that the number one thing that we are called to do in Scripture is not to love God, it's not to serve God, but it's to fear God. Why? Why are we called to fear God more than anything else in the Bible? Because you bend your knee to what you fear most. So if public opinion matters most, and that's what you fear, public rejection, then you will worship it and neglect and forsake worshiping God. But if you fear God most, and you bend your knee to him alone, 
then no physically daunting challenge, no enemy can tempt or take away your worship from the one true God. So there's so much detail because we have fear in play. And the question is, do you fear the word of God as the people of God so that you'll stand on it in the face of opposition? Or do you fear opposition that's physically daunting, technologically advanced, that has weapons that draw fear into your mind more than you fear the God of promise who broke you free from the land of Egypt? This is what's in play. This is why there's so much detail in this story. So in the middle of this, the tall guy bows down. Saul is afraid. Eliab is afraid. The army is afraid. In fact, this goes on. Goliath coming down in the valley, according to verse 16, for 40 days. Does that sound familiar? Is there other text about 40 days? and 40? Anyway, uh, every morning and evening, the Philistine champion strutted, we call that peacocking today, in front of the Israelite army. And he extends this taunt, extends this invitation. Any one of you. Saul's servants, Saul's slaves, I defy your army. You're afraid. You aren't the people of God. God's left you. God's not with you. He doesn't care. You just fill in the blank with whatever it is he's throwing out there. Then skip down with me. After this has gone on for 40 days, the UPS man shows up. And here's why. In verses 20 to 22, we learn that he shows up with cheese and grain for his commanding officer and his, for his brother's commanding officer and his brothers and for Saul. And he's only there to bring back a token to his dad that will tell him that his brothers are still alive. So David shows up as a courier, and this is what the text says, because the story changes, and most of us, if we didn't know the back half of the life of David, we wouldn't think anything big had happened. But in verse, 20, uh, in verse 22, it says this. <clears throat> it says... Uh, David left his things with the keeper of the supplies, and he hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. And the text right there, what it's saying is, today, unlike the other 40, David heard, and he was in trouble. And most of us will look at that and be like, the teenage runt son of Jesse heard that the nine-foot-tall giant armored and technologically advanced and a man of war is taunting. Like, what's going to change? What is David, when you look at him, going to do that's going to change this narrative at all? I mean, we're going to send the courier out to fight the champion? We're, we're, we're going to send little David to take on Goliath, the man of war? And it goes on from there, and this is what it says. Look at what happens in verse 28. David hears this. And as soon as the Israelites saw him, verse 24, they began to run in fright. And they said to each other, have you seen the giant? The men asked. He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give that man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. The wife thing's cool, but if I was exempted from paying taxes, I probably would, within the Lord, muster up some strength and be like, I'll try. Right? I ain't got to pay taxes no more? Okay. Let's go. You know, like... like we're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go. So David hears this. David asks the soldier standing nearby, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? This is called good Hebrew smack talk that's about to happen. Who is this pagan Philistine anyway? Oh, David, pagan Philistine, snap. You better not let him hear you because he's bigger. He's going to kill you. 
Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? And these men gave David the same reply. They said, yes, that is the reward for killing him. But when David's oldest brother Eliab, who was really happy that he had been anointed king, I'm so happy for you, David. Bless your heart. You're going to get to be the king. We're going to serve you. I'm the oldest son, huh? This is great. Love my life. When Eliab heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. <clears throat> Here's what I want you to see. David has a big battle to fight, but he's being tempted to fight a small battle that was never his to fight to begin with. He's on his way to fight a giant that's way bigger than Eliab that Eliab won't take care of. But Eliab wants to stop, discourage, and keep him from moving forward to his destiny. I never will forget when I was nine years old, we were in Death Valley. It was in the middle of Clemson being god-awful. I mean, I'm talking so bad that my dad, who never leaves anything early, started leaving early. And I remember we were standing there, and there was this guy that was there every year, front row, top deck, in our section. We got to know him. Love the Clemson Tigers, but it was kind of creepy looking back on it that a 50-year-old man was that invested in the livelihood of 18 to 22-year-olds carrying a piece of pig's flesh across the goal line. I mean, he was all in. I mean, all in before Dabo went all in, like nuts all in. And on one particular day, we were playing Marshall. They had this unknown guy uh, that became a wide receiver named Randy Moss. He, uh, uh, you know, <clears throat> he was terrible. And, and, and they just beat us. It was the first game of the year. We had hope and high expectations, which is really dangerous in college football. And he had had enough because he had paid for his season tickets. He had bought a new hat. He had bought his T-shirt. He had read the rosters. He had followed recruiting. He was all in and invested. And in a moment of just anger, he took his hat off and threw it off the top deck and yelled a bunch of stuff that my dad wouldn't let me hear because my ears became muffled at that point in time. <laughs> and I remember at nine years old thinking, that guy's got fight in him, but he's using it for the wrong thing. Some of y'all, I just want to tell you, you got fight in you. And the problem's not that there's not passion and drive, it's that you're using it for the wrong thing. You've gotten stuck in a side battle that was never yours to fight. Eliab wants to debate with David the intentions and the motives for going and fighting Goliath. He wants to argue with David and keep him away from the battle lines, but David doesn't have time for that battle. There's a bigger battle that he has to fight. In fact, if you look at it, Eliab questions David, and then in verse 30, it goes on to say, he walked over, uh, excuse me, verse 29, it says, what have I done now, David replied, I was only asking a question. Basically, he says, it was just words. I'm not going to give any more words, though, to this argument. I'm moving on. And if you're not careful, you can miss your battle because you fight the wrong one. You can waste your passion and all of your energy fighting for what you think is going to matter, and it, in, in a light of eternity won't have made a hill of beans of difference that you fought and won that battle. If you're not careful, you'll fight the wrong battles, and that's the first application point. If you want to live a life of impact, you've got to fight the right battles. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of a guy named Nehemiah. Nehemiah saw the state of the nation of Israel, that it was in shambles. They had been led off into captivity, and he comes back to build a wall, and the king of where he was blessed him to to build that wall, supplied him with everything he needed to do it, but critics came quick, and the critics wanted to fight instead of build, because if they could argue with him, they could keep him from building. They knew it. Nehemiah wasn't going to fall for it, because his battle was building the wall back, 
so that the nation of Israel could have protection in its gates. So he couldn't get off the wall to come down and have a debate. No, we can't do lunch. No, we can't talk about whether or not you like the style of building that we're building. No, it doesn't matter what your opinion is on the brick structure, on the content structure, on the amount of time we're putting into this, what this means for your future. My battle is to build this wall. And I'm going to be devoted to that battle, and I'm not going to get divided in these sub-battles that will keep me from being effective. Some of you, you've got to learn. There's some battles that aren't yours to fight. There's some battles that you just need to let other people debate while you get stuff done with the battle that you were created to fight for in your life. I've felt this in ministry my entire life. Almost every season of major growth has been accompanied by critics and keyboard warriors that wanted to evaluate and analyze everything that we had ever done. I had a pastor one time start a hate blog just so he could document everything that he disapproved of that was going on in our church and in our ministry. Being a good follower of Jesus and being prompted by some of the leadership of our church, I called him up and said, sounds like we got beef. And before Taylor Swift had written the song, but I was like, we got bad blood? Because I thought we had the Savior's blood. I thought that's what we had that was uniting us together. We sat down at Chili's where all good things are dissolved and worked out. <clears throat> he bought the chicken. I bought the salsa and the chips because they're bottomless. <laughs> After an hour, this person ran everybody in my church that he could think of through the mud but had nothing that he could say against me. And after an hour sitting there, I said, so let me get this straight. You have nothing theologically that you're bringing against me. You have no argument that you're bringing against me. There's nothing that is actually dealing with me. It's dealing with my flock. It's dealing with the people that I'm leading. He said, yeah. And I said, your problem's not with me. Your problem's with Jesus. I'm an under-shepherd. And yeah, we are broken people. We are not perfect people. And not everyone's batting a thousand. And I have a good feeling that if I were to go through your church with a fine-tooth comb, I find plenty of people that aren't exactly living up to the ten that are laid out in the Ten Commandments for us in the Old Testament. But we don't want to go there. At the end of the day, we want grace. We want mercy. So stop judging my sheep that are actually belong to his pasture, and I'm not going to judge your sheep that belong in his pasture. I was done with it. Never going to do it again. Did they continue to say stuff and take shots? Yes. I was done. I didn't get on Facebook. I didn't answer them. I didn't respond to them. You know why? wasn't my battle. I had sought reconciliation. I sought to see if I had sinned so that I could take uh, responsibility for my sin. I saw that there was a miscommunication so that I could clarify the miscommunication. But once that was done, I washed my hands of it and I gave it no more of my attention. Look, some of y'all, you put so much attention in what people are saying about you or what you think they're passive-aggressively saying about you because they're cowards. That's why they hide behind the computer screen and type passive-aggressive post out trying to draw drama and attention to themselves. And you're giving them all your time. And you're giving them all your attention and you're, you're stuttering on the actual battle you've been created to fight because you're looking at whether or not they approve of you going to fight it. Know your battle, folks. Know what God has created you to fight for. You have been created to fight a battle for the kingdom of God that will render a peculiar glory in eternity that will matter. But your battle is not to sit there and get approval of people. In fact, whenever I'm trying to figure out if I'm going to engage in the fight or not, there's a couple things I try to check. The first one I like to check is, am I being goaded into proving it? It's one of the biggest baits that the enemy will put in front of you. Prove it. You're a Christian. You're a good pastor. Prove it. Prove it. Preach for the amen. Preach for the approval of people. Preach so that people come back. Preach so that the seats fill up. Prove it. Prove it. Prove it. And all you get in prove it arguments is carnality. It never gives God glory. So anytime I find prove it being at the heart of it, I know that Satan's in it. Because Satan wants me to operate in the flesh and not in the spirit. I don't engage in prove it battles. It has been proven by Jesus. Who I am, what I'm becoming, 
what I will be, how I will move forward into the future, it all is built on the foundation of the rock that Jesus is my Savior, that He is my Lord, that His blood was sufficient to cover all of my sins, that His Spirit has filled me and empowered me to be the person of God that I'm called to be. Yes, I am broken. Yes, I make mistakes. Yes, I fall short, but my identity is not in my track record. It's not in my performance, but it's in the fact that the blood purchased me and He calls me His. <coughs> I belong to him. So I don't get into the prove-it battles. The first thing Satan says to Jesus whenever he's led into the wilderness to be tempted is prove it. If you are the son of God, prove it. And Jesus never takes uh, the bait. He always responds with scripture because he knows that that's what we as followers of God coming after him would need to do as well. We don't get into prove-it arguments because it's not our battle to fight. On top of that, I don't get into battles with keyboard warriors. If you've got something to say, say it to me. And if not, if you can't say it to me, you've got to text it. You've got to write it down so that you can rehearse it, practice it, make yourself out to be the person who's perfect in it because you wanted to practice the conversation before you had it. No, no, no. I, I ain't got time for that. I ain't got time for that. Not going to fight that battle. That's not my battle to fight. I don't fight for people's approval, and I don't owe everyone a play-by-play -play of what's happening in my life, no matter what Instagram, Facebook, and every other social media platform is telling you. Don't have to do it. I don't get in that battle. You shouldn't either. It's a waste of time. It's a moving target. They don't know what their battle is to fight, so they think their battle is to be your referee. And last I checked, it's the Holy Spirit that leads, directs, convicts, and guides us. Not everyone's approval around us that's supposed to lead us down that path. Know the right battle to fight. That's what I'm trying to get at. Whenever I have someone who's upset and I hear about it, I immediately ask the question, have I sinned? Have I sinned? If the answer is yes, then as a follower of Jesus, we have a responsibility to admit our sin and seek reconciliation. But if the answer is no, and it's just their feelings were hurt, you're not responsible for how people feel about you walking in the path of obedience after God. Not responsible for it. It is not your responsibility. On, on top of that, there may be a, not a sin issue, but a misunderstanding. So when someone's upset with me, I want to know, is there a misunderstanding? Have I poorly communicated? Is there something that I've said, whether it's my fault or not, that's been taken out of context? And as a result of it getting taken out of context, they have a misunderstanding of what's going on with me. If the answer is yes, then I want to go and clarify and fight for peace and unity. That's a battle I'll fight. If I've sinned, I want to fight for reconciliation. That's a battle I want to fight. But if I've not sinned and I've not miscommunicated and you're just upset, not my responsibility to sit there and make sure that I've got your approval before I move forward on the purpose of God in my life. Fight the right battles, folks. David may never make it to Goliath if he stops to fight with Eliab. So instead, he moves on. Look at what it goes on to say in the story. We get down to verse 40. Word gets to Saul. <laughs> Word gets to Saul uh, that David has spoken up. Excuse me, verse 31. Word gets to Saul that David has spoken up and it's reported to him. So verse 32, it says, don't worry. David comes into the court of Saul. Keep in mind, what was David doing before this? He was playing the harp for him. So Saul's familiar because it's the harpist. So no one for 40 days is standing up. Saul, you're tall, physically daunting. For such a time as this, you were chosen. You're hiding. Eliab's hiding. The harp player comes in. And his first words, verse 32, don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul, I'll go fight him. Oh, well, thank God. The kingdom's saved. The harpist is going to fight our battles. 
This is how we fight our battles, with runts named David, who play music. Verse 33, don't, don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight the Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. Here's his argument. I haven't taken care of my father's sheep and goats. And that's going to kill a giant. I mean, I mean think, think about what's going through the, the people's mind. The harpist comes in and is like, don't worry, got this. You can't get this, Saul says. David's like, huh, sheep and goat herder. Yeah, see? I can see you changing your mind. Look at what he goes on to say. When a lion or bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I say, it's gone. Thank God we got more. No, he says, verse 35, I go after it with the club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this, here's some great smack talk, pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God, the Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion, this is the key, and the bear will rescue me from the Philistine. You could get mixed up and think, David's got self-confidence if you don't read the whole story. What David is seeing is in the past, there was a lion and there was a bear and it should have overtaken me, but God had a plan for my life. His hand was on my life and he delivered me from the lion and the bear. And if God can deliver me from those situations because of his plan for me, then he can deliver me from this situation and this battle that stands in front of me. See, David doesn't have self-confidence. He's got God-confidence. And it's God-confidence that propelled him when no one else that had trained in the army to fight was willing to stand up. It's God-confidence that made David go, that's my battle, I'll take care of it. I'll serve my people. <laughs> After a while of debate, verse 37, the Lord rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear and rescued me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said. And may the Lord be with you. Now, I've been in ministry long enough to know what that means. That means I ain't coming. We want to have a, a, a potluck and a ministry outreach on Tuesday night. Will you come, Pastor? Oh, I ain't coming, but God be with you. Bless you. That, that's what that means. Now, to Saul's credit, he gave David his armor, a bronze helmet, a coat of mail, and David put it on and strapped the sword over it and took a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. And he said, I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. Notice what happens. What got David to the point of fighting Goliath was not fancy armor and weapons and physical attributes. It was the presence and the power of God. But Saul, hearing that, doesn't trust in God, doesn't know who God is at this point, has basically turned and forsaken God, and as a result thinks, yeah, you may have a chance if you have some of our modern tech, if you have some of our stuff that we can dress you up with, because what you are, in his mind, is not enough. You want to make a difference for the kingdom of God? If you want to make an impact, let me remind you just of this. You've got to learn to fight the right battles, but number two, you must know who you are. You've got to know who you are. David doesn't fall into the guise that he needs something new. He doesn't need an upgrade to go and take on this new enemy. Instead, the same God that was with them in the face of the bear and the lion is the same God that's going to be with them in the face of the giant. Know who you are. David knew uh, David wasn't what he had made himself uh, by his own work and effort. David knew that David wasn't his experiences. David knew that he wasn't his limitations or his strengths. David had experienced the presence and the deliverance of God in his life, and that was enough to face with confidence the giant that stood before him. Basically, David knew I could have all the armor in the world, all the weaponry in the world, but if I don't have God, this is not going to go well. But if I have God, 
if this is his battle, then no matter what I lack, it will be enough. Because if I have him and nothing else, I have everything. And if I have everything but not him, I have nothing at all. That is the way we have been created to live. With that kind of dependency. We call it extremism. The Bible calls it normal Christianity. It's the normal Christian life. You and I, dependent upon God, trusting in God, knowing who we are in Christ Jesus. So let me just, for a couple people, address really quick. Uh, to the mamas in the room, okay, who constantly hear you're not enough and you play the tape on repeat. And you think if you were like that mom and that Pinterest mom and that cropped image Instagram mom that's got all the followers, if you were more like that and added that to what you had, you would be the mom your kids need. Baloney. I serve a God who appoints the times and places for which we should live, who is sovereign over all, and he did not, by mistake, give you those children. He gave you those children because he chose you in Christ to be the mom they need. You don't need an addition. You don't need a Pinterest board. You don't need better birthday parties. You don't need better celebrations. You don't need to talk kinder. You don't need to be like Martha Stewart mom or whatever version of a mom you've got in your head. You need to be. What your kids need most is you fully alive in your identity in Christ Jesus, momming to the glory of God for the raising up of the next generation. That's all they need. They don't need a different version of you. They don't want the stuff under the tree. Most kids have 262 toys and they play with 12. And here goes Christmas again for you to buy more crap to go, I'm a good mom. No, that, not, that is not proving anything. At the end of the day, Christ in you, that's who you are. You are blood-bought. You are forgiven. You are spirit-filled. You are empowered by God to, to every good work and supplied to every good work that you walk into. And God's not leaving you in this mom thing alone so that you can be insufficient for the kids that he's given you. Are you kidding me? You are in Christ Jesus enough. There's no bullpen. There's no better mom. There's no like, well, my mom was... No, no, no. You are the mom God chose. And the second you realize it, it'll change your life. The second you realize it, it'll change your life. The second you stop comparing yourself and trying to make additions, to, like, like it'll change your life. Look, husbands, look, I, I, I get it. We get a bad rap. We give moms encouragement, and then we beat on the dads. A lot of times we're like, oh, he's going to be tougher. Let me be very clear. Like, like who you can be and who you are in Jesus is the spiritual leader your family needs. They don't need you to be me. They don't need you to be super Christian. They need you to be everything that you are in Christ Jesus. That's it. What you need is Jesus. And you can be the husband. You can be the father that you've been called to be. You don't need to be a version of a dad that you aren't. You don't need to be a version of dad in the future and think that when you get there, you'll be a good dad. You are right now sufficient in Christ Jesus for every good work that you have. You are Enough. Oh, we ain't going to get claps on that one. The ladies are like, oh, praise God. <laughs> Dad's are like, yeah, yeah, cool, cool. <laughs> Feelings, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> if you're in leadership at work, you are in Christ what you need. Look, what, what, what our community needs most it's not perfect Christians, it's dependent Christians. It's people that know who they are in Christ Jesus and they're willing to walk on it and face the giants that they face in Christ. Know who you are, fight the battles that you were created to fight. My question for you is, is the battle yours or the, the Lord's? Is the battle yours or the Lord's? Verses 40 to 47 give us a whole lot of smack talk. David goes out basically in shepherd gear. He brings a knife to a gunfight. 
And Goliath is almost insulted that they would send such a young, ill-equipped runt. So he makes fun of him. He tries to intimidate him. He calls down a curse upon David and a curse upon David's God, which again, according to Leviticus, was punishable by death by stoning. And David responded back to him and said, you don't just defy me, but you defy the living God in whose name I come. And it says that whenever the giant drew up against David, David didn't back down. Instead, it says he ran quickly after him. He had picked up five stones. They were likely the size of a tennis ball. A&E, I love what A&E does. They did a, a special that looked at how quick you could sling a stone out of one of those old slingshots. If you were a skilled uh, artisan with that slingshot, you could sling a rock at around 100 miles an hour. Imagine a tennis ball coming out at 100 miles an hour out of that slingshot, striking someone in the head. You don't have to imagine. If you look it up when A&E did it, they showed what it would have looked like when that thing would have hit Goliath's head. Let's just say it was not PG-13. <laughs> Probably in the end of your Sunday school felt more presentation of the story you saw where after David struck him, he took David's sword up, chopped his head off, and was like, and, and like ran it back to Saul. And Saul was like, that's weird. Put it out there. <clears throat> David knew the battle was the Lord's and he knew what was at stake was bigger than him. If you flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 15 to 22, it says this. This is years after the first giant fell. It says, once again, the Philistines were at war with Israel. You'd think they learned. And when David and his men were in the thick of battle, David became weak and exhausted. That dude, not trying that, I'm from Moonville, was a descendant was a descendant of the what? Giants. Now, that's a, that's a term. I don't have time to explain it necessarily, but there were a giant people that existed because there was an intermixing at one point in time between the human race and the angelic race, and it created these large people. I know it freaks some people out. Some people like, that's crazy, but you know, I'll leave that to your own wormhole of a study. But that guy who was a descendant of the giants with his bronze spearhead, which weighed more than, what are we doing? Look at us. Look, I can throw a 7-pounder. I can throw a 15-pounder. Okay. And he was armed with a new sword, new tech, and he had cornered David and was about to kill him. Did the nation of Israel cower? Were they afraid of giants at this point? But Abishai, son of Zerah, came to David's rescue and killed the Philistine. Then David's men declared, you are not going to battle with us again while risk snuffing out the light of Israel. After this, there was another battle against the Philistines at Gob. As they fought, that guy, yep, from that place, killed Saph, another descendant of the... We don't get a lot of details into this. We don't need to go through a rundown of all their armory. We don't need, we, why? Because it's already been done. What was a huge faith step for David became a floor step for the people that came after him. You, you see, what's at stake in you knowing what battle to fight? What's at stake in you living within the identity that you've been given in Christ Jesus? It's not just your eternal impact, but it's the legacy that your kids walk in behind you. It's the legacy of the next generation that watches and observes how you worship. See, my, my prayer is that what's a huge step of faith for us is common and normal faith to the next generation. What we fast and wring our hands out over becomes things that kids in confidence that see our example rise up and know that God can Know that he will, and then they take on the giants that we've yet to see. Uh, consider this. What is the impact currently 
of your lack of obedience or your faithful obedience on the next generation. It's amazing to me that people will prioritize so many things above the worship of God. Uh, New York went into a state of emergency this morning, uh, but they're still going to send their kids to public school. But your church, you need to be closed now. So education, important. God worshiping as a community, not important. No, no, no. That is of eternal significance, and it means something within the legacy of what we leave behind. We, we need to worship together. We need to see God at work together. This is not like some like secondary thing. It's, it's primary. We, being together, we're an ecclesia. It means church, like us getting together to worship God. I, I get it where some of you are like, you're meddling, but let, let me be very clear. I, do, I want my family to know that worship matters. No matter what the score of the game was last night, there's a bigger thing that we had to fry this morning when we came here, and that was worshiping God. So I don't care if it was garnet or orange. At the end of the day, what we are doing here matters more. And if I'm going to prioritize being there last night, then my butt and my family will be here the next day. Because the worship of God is greater than the worship of a football team. Come on, somebody, in the middle of South Carolina, in the middle of this state that worships it like it's God. I mean, like... This, this is what I'm getting after. Your obedience matters. How you live, it matters. Like people are watching, your kids, the next, they're watching you. And their faith, in many ways, is a symbol or a mirror of the faith that they've seen out of you. So may your faith, your example, your obedience and surrender to the Holy Spirit Leave behind a legacy that slays giants that the next generation won't bat an eye at because of their God confidence that's grown through your example. Hmm. May, may we raise the next generation that takes the gospel further than we've ever taken it before. I closed last service by telling this story. It's one of my favorite ones. It's back when ISIS took over and began to drive people out, especially Christians, and they put that Hebrew symbol on their, on their doors to mark them. And so a uh, non Fun, publicly funded news media outlet ran a story and the story was they found these church plant trainers and church plant trainees on the run and they asked them what, what they were doing since they had been displaced since their goal was to reach Muslim Christians that seemed to be an impossibility at this point in time and the church plant trainer said we're training Muslim people or Islamic people who have become Christian to plant churches to reach Muslim people with the gospel and perplexed, the reporter looked at him and said, well, how are you going to do that now that they want to kill you? And what, what if they kill you? Now, I never will forget his statement, because with conviction, he looked and said, if they kill us, then our blood will speak to the blood of the Savior that was spilled for them. But until Jesus takes us home, or we die trying, we will spill our blood and spend our time fighting the battle of planting churches to reach the unreached. He found his battle. How about you? What's your battle? We got our prayer team here. We'd love to talk with you about what it means to fight that. If you don't know Jesus, we'd love to talk with you about what it means to have a relationship with him. But as we respond, let's make sure we do that. You respond. Sing, pray, kneel, do whatever it is the Lord have you do. In Jesus' name, amen.